welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. And now, your host, actor and writer, Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. Host Stephen Brittingham here. Thank you for listening, friends and listeners. I appreciate it very much. The focus today is on Time Now. Love that title. A new film by screenwriter and director Spencer King. After viewing Time Now, I can tell you in advance that my guest Spencer King has crafted an intriguing, emotionally complex story of family dysfunction and grief. Jenny, hello. It's your Aunt Joan. I think you need to be here, honey. Oh, I've missed you, baby. Hey. It's easy to be here when it's too late. Was he alone? He was with a friend. Gonzo. Gonzo. You two are close. Brothers. I would trade places with them if I could. What else did he say? He was worried about you. Time Now also features an outstanding and impressive performance by Eleanor Lambert. Are you going to say hi to Andrew? My Andrew has been gone for a long time. Now is not the time. I didn't come here to relive the past. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, Spencer. Thank you, Stephen. Well, it's so nice to have you here. I just literally viewed your film the other day, and I'm very much uh, looking forward to learning more about the making of the film. So thanks again for joining me. Of course. Well, I sure hope this finds you doing well. Where are you joining me from today? I'm joining you from Austin, Texas. I'm at the Austin Film Festival currently. Oh, wow. Very nice. Are you there promoting Time Now by chance? Well, I'm here for the world premiere of Time Now, which is on Saturday. And now I'm just enjoying the Lone Star State for a couple more days. Wow. Very exciting. Well, I hope you have a super enjoyable time. And let me just say here and now, congratulations on the completion of Time Now and the release of the film. Thank you, sir. Means a lot. You know, Spencer, with you also being the screenwriter of the film, I'd like to know, how did the seeds for Time Now all begin for you? How, how did the idea for this type of storyline start to enter your thoughts as a screenwriter? Well, the story started with me... I lived in Detroit, and I lived there for about five years, and it's 
just it, it radiates into all of the creative ventures that I was doing. And it really, it started with a, um, you know, an intrigue in the city and the, in the world that I felt like I was uniquely a part of. Um, and wanting to tell a story that could capture that. And then it, on the other coin, the other side of the coin was the character Jenny. Was she, uh, she stuck out to me and, and Cash as well. And those two characters, I worked on the script for a long time, and those two characters were the central pillars of every draft of it. And uh, so, yeah, it was just a fascination with those two characters living and involved in this city. How did Eleanor Lambert become involved with the film? Was she someone that you originally had in mind in advance, or did that develop later on for you? We have uh, we have mutual friends, and I was we uh, I followed her on Instagram and stuff, and I and uh, I just reached out and sent her the script, and we had a conversation, and it was it was a better conversation than I think either of us probably thought it. And we, you know, after that first conversation, it was pretty clear that we were both going to go in this direction. I tell you what, she just gave such an outstanding, fantastic performance. Uh, she took me as a viewer on a, an emotional journey. And I'd like to say uh, you have lots of really nice shots in the film. Um, I would say that you you really have a lot of focus. I, I see a lot of tight direction, which is something I really enjoy when I'm watching a film, especially one that's taking you on a mystery or a journey. Uh, you also had some very nice shots on the freeway with, with the, some characters like Ginny and uh, you know in a car, and you just had a nice touch to those scenes. So I wanted to uh, give you a nod about that approach. Also, some very nice lighting. I noticed there was a scene, I believe, in the back of a building at night, maybe in a somewhat of an alley, and there was this overhead, like, you know, street lamp. And it was just a way that you shot it. I thought, wow, that's a very nice shot. So really nice job. Was it your intention in advance to shoot this film in such a manner, or did you kind of discover your approach as you went along making the film? Yeah, well, Sean Mouton, our director of photography, and I spent a long time in pre-production um, figuring out uh, every shot of this and storyboarding this whole thing. And, you know, when we were filming 90-page script in 15 days, we're doing six pages a day. So you don't really have much time to dilly-dally on set. And you know, I think that actually was a big, that was a plus for us in this film because it gave us the motivation to really make sure that we were prepared by the time we got there. And, um, and yeah, so the cinematography, at, at Sean, Sean absolutely, I mean, he's the biggest gift to work with on this, and we, we formed such a great relationship, and I don't see myself working with anyone else anytime soon. So he absolutely killed this. Um, and then back to Eleanor, I mean, she, what a, what a leap of faith for her um, to jump into this project and uh, not to know many people and coming to a city she's never been to and to be here for three weeks and to be, you know, there's 
every film is a lead actor, but not every lead is in 95% of the scenes and needs to carry it. And, um, you know, we could have all done the best job in the world. And if she didn't, if she didn't deliver, the film wouldn't have worked, you know? So she was the most important part of this whole process, including myself, you know? Um, and she absolutely delivered and, uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's really, I feel very fortunate to be able to work with her. You know, I liked that the fact that I could have moments to absorb the storyline and also the performance by Eleanor and the and the cast in general. In other words, I appreciated that it wasn't rushed. I also thought of this film as being a slow burner, and I mean that in a compliment, by the way. Uh, was that also a decision you made in advance? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's everyone takeaway from this film, you know, people either like that about it or they don't like that about it. So, you know, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but, um, I'm very, I'm very inspired by old films or by old cinema and, uh, not rushing stories. And as a screenwriter also, it's just hard for me to like be asking the audience to take leaps of faith with, uh, learning new information and, that's uh, all at once and stuff, and you know, it's it's. I try to do things in a natural way, and I know that it's. I know that it's. It can be tough. You know, it's tough to sit through certain things, and if you're gonna ask the audience to to be there and to be along the ride for for a slow burn, like you said, then you have to execute in all other realms of this. So I hope we did. You know, I hope that I hope that more people have the takeaway that you had, with, that they can enjoy the 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 moments of air in this and the the filmmaking and the actors getting through some long long moments and being in their being in their minds and reading between the lines you know so I, I uh, definitely a film that you you have the ability to use your imagination to fill in certain <laughs> absolutely. And I noticed another approach that you took, Spencer, and that is the use of, let's say, adult language is spread out. It's not a film that is full of profanity. And don't get me wrong, there's a time and place for that, especially, you know, I'm always under the uh, belief that if a character truly speaks a certain way, then sure, you, you, uh, you display that. I mean, think of Scarface, for example. I mean, it becomes its own language with all of the F words. But I've also seen films, and perhaps you have as well, when I feel the screenwriter is forcing the profanity. And to me, it take it makes me react in a more... It feels like it's unnatural, like like it's forced language, maybe trying to be hip for the sake of being hip. I don't always think that works, actually. So I wanted to commend you for choosing moments of language. It's just something that I noticed. And then whenever a character did have a profanity, it had much more of an impact, I thought. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's something I try, and, I try and do that in real life, too. You know, I... It definitely was a time maybe when I was a little younger where every other word coming out of my mouth would be a curse word. Um, and I think a lot of us have been there. 
And uh, then you, it's just like you said, you know, the older you get, the more you realize that those words kind of lose their power if you use them too much. And, uh, and yeah, that was definitely a conscious decision. I, I, I'm with you. I find it, I find it vulgar when it's over the top and it's, and it's forced. And I don't, I don't like to listen to someone cussing every other word if it's not necessary. You know, it's not, it's, it's a cheat code. It's a cheat code to show emotion that you want to show that you can't figure out another way to do it. Absolutely. And you can usually tell when it feels like a good fit. Like, oh, of course this character would be talking like that. Or these group of people under this circumstance. But like you were pointing out, you can also really tell when it's just being done for the sake of doing it. And it really does lose its impact at, at that type of approach. Uh, uh, another thing I wanted to bring up was that the music in the film, I thought, was very effective. And uh, I wanted to ask you all about that. Please do, yeah. Um, Evan Bishkin, our composer, did all the original music, um, the, uh, the score composition. He was such a pleasure to work with. And uh, we have formed a good relationship, and that's always been, on the few smaller films I've done, it's always been my, actually my favorite part of the whole process is working with a composer. I was lucky enough to work with another composer on my other films, Josh Cowdrey. Um And uh, it's just, it's, you know, it's a special process that I think um, every director probably cherishes. But working with a composer and seeing then take your film to the next level is amazing. And Evan, I mean, he, he thinks everything through and it's all intentional. And uh, that's really all you can ask. Absolutely. And speaking of music, I liked how that moment in the film where you're watching one scene and then all of a sudden you see a scene with a character inside a recording studio and and, and you let it kind of play out for a few moments. And I thought, oh, wow, that was a nice shift to a different um, um, atmosphere, a different moment in the film. And I just kind of wanted to bring up, bring that up to you that I really thought that was uh, done nicely. Thank you. Yeah, no, that was, uh, that is the shift in the film. That's when it begins to, the, uh, the second part of the story really begins to come in right there. You know, uh, Spencer, I'm really looking forward to asking you about this because you are the screenwriter, <laughs> okay? You're not only the director, you're the man who, you know, uh, created the characters and, and, and developed the plot. So I feel like there's a lot of levels to this film. We talked about how it was a slow burner, but also the family dysfunction. I really noticed that... The, the depths you went with that. And when I am mentioning this, it's not that you were trying to be like, oh, let's talk about family dysfunction. You were just displaying it. You were just showing that these people have issues as a family from the past, from this tragic situation uh, that the film kind of revolves around. Uh, I, I thought it was so well done in a natural way. You know, the bitterness the resentment that can often unfortunately develop with families. So my question is this, was that based on any folks that perhaps you've encountered like other families 
Um, or if I may ask, was it also based on any of your personal experience? Or was this really just um, use of your imagination at work? Well, it definitely wasn't a use of my imagination. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. I, I don't really. I don't really. I'm never really related to big happy families that have no issues. I don't know if they even exist. I don't know. Maybe just on paper they do. Um, who knows? Maybe they do. I hope to have one one day. <laughs> um, well, I sure hope so. <laughs> but you know, yeah, I I, I I think yeah, I definitely family's difficult, man, you know. Um and it's uh it's a tough thing to get into that. Yeah, I mean I, I don't I don't a hundred percent um there's a lot of characters in this that are based off people in my life and people I know and uh and, and yeah, so I definitely, I'm definitely channeling from, from experience. That would be my answer. <laughs> and with Eleanor's character, to continue the theme for a moment, so obviously she is uh, uh, dealing with all sorts of, of family dysfunction, but I also thought there was even more to that. You know, in many ways, this was like a brooding performance. And again, that's a compliment. Um, I also thought the character seemed very unhappy, like as a woman, as a young lady, that she was already very unhappy, or that's what I was taking from it. And then I often wondered if this character was not just really depressed. So am I off on any of that? Yeah, um... I don't know. Happiness is such a happiness really is a state of mind that uh, isn't consistent in my opinion. Um, she, she is, you know, she she's trying to find herself still, and she she. I think there's a tough thing when you're in a place in life where you have a lot of responsibilities, and you know, you you progress on paper, you're progressing like you know, maybe society tells you to do, but you, you haven't figured yourself out. And that's where Eleanor is, or not Eleanor. <laughs> it's where <laughs> Jenny is. Um, <laughs> Eleanor is, the, uh, is not anything like Jenny, so let's definitely make sure to... I'm not surprised <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, that character, is, that character has a lot of responsibilities, but she probably probably isn't fully ready to... You know, she probably hasn't. She she's, she hasn't focused on herself enough, and um, I don't know if she's depressed or if she's just unable to fully dictate her emotions and understand her emotions. I mean, that 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 plays into depression a lot. That plays yes. into depression and anxiety. And you, Perhaps and you she's processing react. everything in her life because you have yeah. that moment of uh, with her you know, uh, child's father, right? Um, her husband, um, or was it her ex-husband or were they in the process of a divorce? No, well, they're, they were, it's her husband and then she goes back and he's cheating on her. So that's right. And And you can see where she's a very caring mother. 
I and uh, I liked how Eleanor would uh, go about those scenes. But yeah, you're right. It's like it's a character that's really um oh boy what's the right word um maybe she's just trying to sort out a whole bunch of things at one time and it's like she's always thinking about something she's feeling something and and isn't it amazing how how eleanor can say so much without even speaking yeah it is amazing and i think every character did that honestly i think claudia did that yes i think i think they who played cash did that um Tanya, or Paige who played Paige who played Tanya. You know, every character really that was something that I really wanted was I wanted these characters to have to sit in the room and get uncomfortable, um, in the middle of the scene. And no one really had the words. Um none of these characters really had the words to really uh, until Cash does at the very end of the movie. Cash is it's kind of the first time anyone in this film really you know, really stills the the gosh darn truth on the table, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was. And it was, it, Eleanor, Eleanor handled that amazingly. Very talented cast. I'd like to commend all of the uh, folks in the, in the cast as well. They, they did a great job. It was a wonderful fit. You put the pieces, uh, puzzles all together nicely. Yeah, I just want to say Janine Thompson, who played Helen, and Peter Knox, who played Jeff, the mom and dad, like they're both local Detroit actors. I think that they they both handled their work amazingly as well. And um, I was happy to have some great Detroit talent in there too. The crew was all Detroit based too. So, you know, it was really, I'm proud of, proud of everyone. I'm proud of a lot of people mixed in being involved in this. Well, before I ask you how folks can watch your film, I thought I would ask you really quick, you know, after viewing the film, I've, I've just been thinking about this because you, you really build up to this conclusion and you had me wanting to know how it was going to conclude. Was Jenny, to a certain extent, was her perception distorted by all of the events that happened to her twin brother? Uh, in other words... Did she blow up what happened and made it into something else? Or was she on target, so to speak? No, Jenny, Jenny, yes, you're right. Jenny blew it up, but Jenny didn't understand. Jenny, Jenny is the hidden antagonist in the film, disguised as a protagonist. Like Jenny. Well, I'm glad I asked this question because that's been on my mind a lot, to be honest. No, and that's cool. I'm, I'm, that's, I want people to pick that up, you know. And that's not to say Jenny's a terrible person, but there's no, there's no world where her brother Gonzo wanted her to kill Cash. Um, the whole film we're building up to something happened nefarious, and you know I think people are letting their mind go in different directions of what Cash may have done, and we're kind of treating him as the villain. And then in that last moment, you realize it was, it was just an accident. You know, and that's what this film is about, is that things aren't black and white. And and Cash messed up, and Donza died, and I don't think that Donza would want... And I don't think Donza would want Cash to go to jail for it, which is that and I definitely know that he didn't want his sister that hasn't come to visit him in, you know, however many years to kill Cash and and then throw away her own life and all of a sudden her kid is going to be raised by someone else, which 
you know, might be for the best with her mental state. But yeah, it's, it's you know, she she we're we're seeing we're seeing everything happen from her perspective, and there's a lot of different perspectives we could have told the film from. And you know, we do that, and then right at the end, it's like, man, he. I don't think. I don't think Cash is perfect, but everything he says in that last scene is. Mm. It really uh, grabs you. It's called. It's calling her out. Calling her out. So. Um, and I think that's what yeah, made it disturbing for me as a viewer. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it again because now that I know how it ends, I'd like to re-experience the journey that Jenny goes on and try to see if I can maybe see see it through different eyes. Um, cool. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I would like to add one follow-up question to that, though. Something that could possibly be overlooked, and that is it's one thing to experience deep grief over a sibling, let's say, but when you're a twin, we, we always hear about that connection, right? There's just something different. Maybe if one's upset, the other knows. I've heard about that. Or something happens to someone, the other knows, even if they're miles and miles apart. Did that kind of play, do you think, on Jenny's grief, the whole twin connection that kind of maybe distorted her thoughts and perspective? Maybe she elevated the whole situation, perhaps because of the twin scenario? Yeah, I think, I think a hundred percent, you know, I don't, I don't have a twin, but I can't imagine that I can imagine that losing a twin sibling would be different, you know, than just losing a, a regular sibling, you know, like there's a connection that, I mean, especially triplets. And then imagine, mm-hmm. imagine what, if you're already someone that's, thinking about the reasons for everything. Imagine if you're a triplet and two of your brothers have died, like you, you probably think you're next, you know, or why am I still here? And yeah, of course, the, being a twin, I, that connection is so, is so deep. And that's why they have these dream sequences where he's out in the wilderness and, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's really the point where we're showing the twin connection. And th- it's also another thing where it's, it is that. And then, Jenny sometimes thinks it might be a little more than it actually is. You know, there's that moment when she first walks into Gonzo's loft and she she goes and she grabs the bottle of wine from the cabinet and Joan says, how do you know that was there? And she says, it's where I would have put it. And, uh, and that's kind of, it's not like, you know, it's her thinking like, oh, we're so connected, but it's also like, you just looked in the wine cabinet, you know, that wasn't the, <laughs> that wasn't the biggest. So she's kind of reading into this thing and she thinks she knows her brother. And I think that's why, that's a big reason why she pulls the trigger at the end too. You know, she, she thinks she has this connection with him, that she, well, I think they might not have anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that if I was a twin and something like that happened, you, you know, there's a lot of ways to read into it. Well, I have to tell you, Spencer, I found the film refreshing. I, I think that it, it, it's different than what I've been seeing lately, and I wanted to commend you for that. I'm really looking forward to your future projects. Now, you said that you're at the premiere for the film? I premiered on Saturday. So One the sa- premiere is done. Okay. And how did that go for you? 
<laughs> it was a really great experience. Yeah. That's wonderful, and congratulations. Now, how can folks view Time Now? It's on uh, all pay streaming services. Uh, not Sorry, not... It's on, like, iTunes and all this, and YouTube and stuff like that, you know, yes. where you can buy a film for a couple bucks or whatever. Um, it's on all those services, and then we, uh, we're hoping to get it on a streamer in the next couple months, and then... That will be a. That will be. That's the end goal. That's where the director's cut will be dropped on. So, let's hope to let's hope to get there. <laughs> well, Spencer, thank you for uh, visiting me today on Hollywood and Beyond, and I really appreciate you sharing your insight and more on the making of the film. So, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Stephen. I've enjoyed this talk too, and thank you for uh, for asking thoughtful questions. It means a lot. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Do you happen to have a question or a comment for me, or perhaps you feel that you might make an interesting guest here on Hollywood and Beyond? Whatever your reason may be, please feel free to contact me anytime directly at the show's official email address. That would be hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com That is hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com I look forward to hearing from you soon.